Well, hi, welcome to The Christian Contrast, where we talk about how walking with Jesus leads us to live differently than the world around us. I'm Dan Franklin, and we're we're in our third part of these um, at least four passages that I'm going to go through related to marriage, to the Bible and marriage. And so we've talked through Ephesians 5, which is a real central passage about marriage. Um, we've talked through uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and some parts in there that talk about marriage. And today we're going to talk about marriage and divorce and a passage in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus is asked a, asked a question about divorce. And so in some ways this could feel like, all right, this is sort of a narrower discussion because we're not talking about marriage in general, where we're talking specifically about questions revolving around if there's ever a time for divorce, and if so, how do you ferret that out? But I also think that as we talk about this subject, we get some insight. Jesus doesn't just address a, div- a divorce by addressing divorce. He addresses divorce by addressing marriage, and I think that that's significant. So we're going to go through Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. I'm going to pull in some other passages to help fill this out, um, and, and we'll see how this goes. I, I've been, in general, we try to keep these podcast episodes to about 30 minutes. This one might go a little bit long, um, just because I really want to thoroughly cover questions surrounding this and and try to thoroughly cover what the Bible has to say about this subject. So we'll walk through uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12, verse by verse, and just kind of talk through this passage. Verse 3 says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Um, So basic question from the Pharisees seems to be, when is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? And when is it not okay for a man to divorce his wife? Is it just game on? Anything that he finds that, that he doesn't like about her, he can go ahead and go for it? Or are there some constraints? Um, and, and what I also want to say is we can notice in the way that uh, this is worded from the Pharisees, it says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so it is focused on the man, although sometimes that's just a generic way of talking about things. Um, but I, I wanted to pause on there because there's some people that say what's actually going on in this passage is not primarily that Jesus is addressing the rightness or wrongness about divorce in all sorts of circumstances, but that he's more narrowly addressing the fact that in this culture, the man was the only one who could pursue a divorce, and this put women in a very vulnerable position in in overall society. And so some people will claim what Jesus is addressing here is not primarily marriage and divorce, but primarily the evil of men just casting their wives aside so that they can go and pursue somebody else or go and get a younger wife. Um, uh, What I am going to say is, I think that uh, that certainly is something that Jesus saw as evil, and Jesus certainly was about the protection of of all the vulnerable, including women who are in vulnerable situations. Um, But I also believe that this is an overreach. Um, And one of the reasons it's important just to clarify that is because of where we're at in our culture right now. Um, and, and you could still make a case that women are more vulnerable in the situations of marriage and that they, they could be left high and dry more easily. Um, but it's striking that the last time I looked at the statistics, and I've, I've heard it's even higher um, since the last time I looked, but that it was that in the U.S., 70% of the time when divorce happens, it's the woman who files for divorce. So we certainly aren't living in a situation now where men can divorce their wives, but women don't have any recourse on this. Um, women are divorcing their husbands, and they're divorcing their husbands at much higher rates than men are. Um, I, I said 70% was the last time I've checked. I've heard, I haven't verified this, but I've heard that it's up to 75%. I've also heard that 
Um, if you get amongst college-educated women, it goes even higher than that, upwards of 90%, which, which uh, I don't want to overstep what I know as far as the analysis of that, but what it would seem to point towards is the idea that the greater or, or sort of the lesser vulnerability of women in our society, the fact that there's a lot more paths to see how a woman could make her way through life without a husband after divorcing her husband has shot things way up where women are much more frequently divorcing their husbands than husbands are divorcing their wives. Um, now, now, also just to throw into the mix, you've got the deal where, where no doubt some of these women who are filing for, for divorce, they have biblical grounds for divorce, um, or maybe even their husbands have basically abandoned them, living with some other woman. It's all but a technicality and the husband won't file. I've known of cases like this actually, and it's on the wife to finally file for divorce. So this doesn't mean that 70 to 75% of the time, it's always the woman who is wrong in what she's doing. But it is to say, I mean, it, I don't know what percentage you're willing to assume that the women who are filing for divorce have strong biblical grounds for divorce and are doing the right thing by doing so. We could look at this and say, if we're looking at divorce, it's not currently a problem primarily of men abandoning their wives. It's much more actually a problem of wives deciding to divorce their husbands. Now, if you took this passage and you said, what's actually going on in this passage is that Jesus just wants to make sure women aren't left high and dry, then you might actually shrug your shoulders at that. You might say, well, divorce isn't good, but that's not really a problem. If, if women aren't being taken advantage of and if men aren't being exploited through this, then maybe it's not really a problem. Um, but what I want to say, and I already said this, people who make this not about divorce um, are not really reading the passage carefully and are not really reading the Bible as a whole carefully. So this passage in Matthew 19 that addresses that, that we're going to walk through, it's got parallels in both Mark and Luke. And I want to read you something out of the Mark parallel. So this is Mark chapter 10, and the part that I'm going to read in verses uh, 11 and 12, um, we'll, we'll get to the parallel part of that in Matthew later, but there's something that he throws in here that I think is significant. Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So in Luke here, Jesus, I'm sorry, in Mark here, Jesus is saying a man must not divorce his wife and a woman must not divorce her husband. He, he talks about it both ways. Um, Paul, and we'll be back, um, you know, we were in 1 Corinthians 7 last time, we'll be back in it a couple times today, um, but, but we see this also in 1 Corinthians 7, which talks about marriage and divorce. Um, chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, all right, let me just get it here. It says, to the, married, uh, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Um, once again, you got Paul talking about it both ways. And, and this is one of the odd things that people sometimes just throw out these blanket statements. Well, well wives just couldn't even divorce their husbands. Um, Jesus seems to think that they could, and Paul seems to think that they could. Now, there's no doubt that women were more vulnerable in these situations, so we're probably much less likely to actually initiate divorce. But Jesus in this passage is talking about divorce. He's not simply talking about the exploitation of the partner who's left behind. He's talking about the subject of divorce. And so I want to quash any idea that he's not really addressing divorce. We make too much of this. Jesus is addressing divorce, and I think that's evident through these other passages. So that's the question 
put before Jesus. When, basically, when is it permissible for divorce to take place? Jesus responds in verses 4 through 6. He says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Um, So Jesus responds by pointing back to Scripture and pointing back to the creation account, primarily in Genesis 2, you know, maybe a little bit of Genesis 1, but primarily in Genesis 2, where it talks about man create, uh, God creating both the man and the woman, and then he quotes from Genesis 2, 24, about the man will leave his father and mother behind and be united to his wife, and they'll be one flesh. So he points towards that reality. Jesus points not towards a rule, but he points towards the creation of marriage and also the creator of marriage. He talks about this as being something that was from the beginning, which is an important sign. We we talked about this really in both of the first two parts of of this four-part series. God is the one who made marriage. Therefore, it's not something that we've made up and now we can amend it, and that's why when we talk about things like same-sex marriage, it doesn't make sense even to use the word marriage because marriage is something that God made up, and it's not that. It's not something that's just a long-term committed relationship between two people. It specifically is between a man and a woman. So he says, God made up marriage. The point of the marriage is that the two would become one. And then he says that chilling thing right at the end in in verse 6, where he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And you may have heard this at weddings before. I I always say this at a wedding right after I pronounce the, the couple, husband and wife, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is painting a pretty significant picture. If you're taking just these verses, you certainly would conclude Jesus is given a big no on divorce. He's saying, God made man and woman. God made marriage. Marriage is about two coming together and becoming one flesh. So how dare anyone separate what God has joined together? Um, as I was thinking about this, I, I was remembering, um, I mean, this was a long time ago, because my 17-year-old was a baby. Um, Karina and I had our, our oldest son, Matthew, and we had gone to an event, a young family's event that was connected to our church, and uh, because he was really, really young, I mean, probably just a, a couple months old, we had him in the, the little carrier that you hook into the car seat, and then you, you hook out and you carry around. And uh, we had gone to the people's home, and we just set him down, sort of in a, in a safe place where he could just be there, because he, we were hoping for him to take a nap. Um, well, at one point later on, I, I was off talking to somebody else, and I see one of the women who was a part of this group, and really a woman that we didn't know very well. We, we sort of we knew her name, but we were not close to her at all. Um, I saw her bending down over Matthew's little carrier seat and unbuckling him. And immediately, I was just sort of like, "What? what is going on right now? And so I, I calmed myself down enough that I just walked over, and she was still trying to unbuckle him. And I got there, and I said, hey, what's, what's going on? And she said, well, he's crying. And he was crying. He, he wasn't scream crying. He, he wasn't hysterical. He was just kind of crying like a baby does, like, you know, a little bit of whimpering. And maybe because I'm a dad, I'm like, that's not an emergency. And she said, well, he's crying. I, I think that, you know, I, I should get him up. And I just kind of said, well, 
Um, all right, how about you let me handle it? And I tried to say it as politely as possible. And, and even as I was saying this, she was still trying to get him out. She was still trying to unbuckle him. And, uh, and, and finally, I, I think I had to say something again, like, all right, well, well, why don't you just all, I'll take it from here. And she sort of stopped and, and walked away. And I just remember being so disturbed by this. And, and I, I think the story was that there, there were some hard things going on in this woman's life, and she was not the most sort of like stable person. She wasn't trying to hurt my son. She was trying to do something that was good, but it, it was a pretty clear violation of, of a social cue. You do not just go and get somebody else's kid, unless it's absolutely an emergency. You just do not do that. We had put him in there. We will get him out if we decide that it's time. You don't get to go in and just decide that it's time. Think of that. Even though I was able, I think, to handle that calmly, inside, I, I felt all kinds of just, what gives you the right to do this? God has made marriage. God joins people together. Think of the kind of intensity that we should look at when we just casually separate people. Um, and this not only goes for the idea that somebody might be a homewrecker, you know, somebody might, you know, some husband might try to seduce a wife or some, some woman might, uh, yeah, some man might try to seduce the wife or some woman might try to seduce the husband and, and break up the marriage. That, that certainly is a part of what he's saying. But also, this would be addressed to the husband and the wife. How dare you, as the husband, break up what God has brought together? How dare you, as the wife, break up what God has put together? What God has brought together, let no one separate. This isn't just something where we say, we made this up, we decided to do this, so we get to undo it. God is the one who made up marriage. God is the one who oversees marriage, and what God has put together, let no one separate. So these are strong words. I mean, again, you, you would read this and you would say, divorce is out of the question in any and every situation. Now, we are going to get to some exceptions, and, and an exception that Jesus zeroes in on, but that's a strong statement right at the beginning, that Jesus clearly does not have a casual attitude towards divorce. There's a follow-up question. And the follow-up question comes in verse 7. It says, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, th this is a little tricky because the way that we read this question, it sounds like the Pharisees are saying, Moses commanded us to divorce our wives. They're not saying that. When they're talking about why did Moses command us to give our wives a, a certificate of divorce, what they're saying, and they're most likely alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. You, you can look that up later. What they basically seem to be saying is, in a case of divorce, a man was supposed to give his wife a certificate of divorce, sort of make it official instead of just sending her away. So that seems to be what they're alluding to. And, and here's the deal. It, it's hard to get into exactly what the Pharisees were looking to do here, but, but let's, let's be generous to them. Let, let's say, in a generous way, they seem to be asking a valid question. And the valid question is, hey, if divorce is just out of the question— why is there even a provision for divorce? Why are there even passages that talk about what you do in the case of a divorce if divorce is just out of the question in all situations? And you could say, all right, maybe their motives are that they're trying to wiggle out of it and, and figure out a way, but it still seems like a valid question. You know, it, it's a little bit like when we, you know, we tell teenagers, hey, don't have sex, but here's some condoms. It just sort of feels like, well, well, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You're like, don't ever get divorced, but if you do, here's the process of doing it. So, so let's just take it at face value and say, all right, somewhere buried in there is a valid question that they might have had and that we might have to say, all right, but, but why, if that's the case, 
are there still provisions in the case of divorce? And Jesus answers that, starting in verse 8. It says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, well, let's see. Um, should I go into that? Yeah, I, I'll read it and we'll, we'll go back part by part. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Um, so Jesus answers the question, and, and this is where we start to get into the exception clause, which we will zero in on. But first, just taking a, the Jesus' overall statement is, all right, here's the reason. Here, here's the answer to the question, why is there anything about the process of divorce if divorce is just something that should be out of the question? Jesus says, all right, that there was permissiveness, that there was a provision given for divorce. But he says that's not because that was ever the goal or ever the desire or ever the purpose. That's because God saw the hardness of people's hearts and, and gave sort of by mercy a provision in case of extreme situations. So that's how Jesus is laying this out. He's saying that this isn't in there because God envisioned that most, or even like in our culture, half, you know, it, when we get into, actually, I will make a couple comments on that. God was not envisioning, hey, half of these are probably going to end in divorce, and so I'll set up a divorce proceeding. It was, all right, in, in the extreme far out situation, I am going to allow divorce to happen uh, because sometimes you could see a situation where it would be worse to not allow it to happen. Um, I do want to make a couple comments, though, on the whole um, on on the whole divorce thing, because for a long time, I mean, really for for decades, you know, I, I'm in my 40s and I remember being a teenager and hearing divorce stats thrown around about 50 percent of, of marriages end in divorce. Um, and so a comment on that. And then uh, another thing that you frequently hear is um, the divorce rate is no better amongst Christians than amongst non-Christians. So I want to comment on both of those briefly. Um, and the first thing is to say, all right, that there are ways that you can look at it where, and, and I think it's actually a little bit lower right now, but where you would look at the divorce rate and you'd say, all right, it's, it's in the area of 50%. What you also should just take into mind is that the divorce rate amongst first marriages is not nearly that high. Um, it's it's somewhere in the 30s. The last time I saw it, I think it was at about 32, which is definitely too high, but is not nearly as high. When you get into second and third and fourth marriages, the, those are the ones that spike the divorce rate. Um, I think it's something like, you know, in a second marriage, it's like 70% chance of divorce. And when you get into a third marriage, it's like 80 to 90% chance of divorce. So those skew the statistics. So, so it is correct to say, all right, somewhere in the vicinity of 50% of marriages end in divorce. But when you're talking about first marriages, that's not the case. So, so that's first clarification. The second one is that people throw out and say, uh, amongst Christians, it's no better. Um, that, that has a semblance of truth, but it's deceptive. And the semblance of truth is this. If you survey people and just ask them, are you a Christian? And they answer it. And then you ask them questions about divorce and all that kind of stuff. Um, you will get at least an approximate equivalent in our country between Christians and non-Christians about divorce rates. But if you talk to people who are actually practicing their faith, who are actually involved in a church and where their faith is actually important to them, the divorce rate goes way down. And actually, the marriage rate also goes way up in those situations. And so I say this just to say, sometimes we could be left with the impression, hey, even for believers who are committed and involved in their churches, we have no better shot. Not true at all. If you were just looking at the stats, if you were just looking at the data and saying, how do I put myself in the best position to have a successful marriage that doesn't end in divorce, you would get involved in a church. 
because the statistics are with that. So those are a couple points of clarification. But again, Jesus' big picture is saying, all right, divorce is there for the exceptional case, and because of the hardness of people's hearts, it's never what God desired out of any kind of marriage. And then he gives the exception clause. Again, in verse 9, he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so divorce, remarriage is usually assumed after divorce. Um, And this is one of the questions that comes up when we talk about marriage and divorce, to say, all right, well, what Jesus says is, if you divorce your wife and marry another woman, then you're committing adultery, basically, because you still are bound to this woman that you first married. But you could ask the question, all right, right, what, what if I get divorced, but I don't remarry? Is, is that then okay? Be, because I'm not committing adultery, because I'm not having sex. So if I just get divorced and then stay celibate the rest of my life, is that okay? And I think biblically what we'd have to conclude is, okay, it's, it's less bad. It's not as bad as if you marry somebody else. But we'd also say, with marriage, you're making promises to someone. You're making vows to someone. So it certainly isn't something that we should just look at and say, all right, all right, here's the deal. We're we're just going to get divorced, but we both will stay stay celibate the rest of our lives to sort of like walk the line and avoid technically violating God's law. That still is not at all within the spirit of what Jesus is going for here. So remarriage is assumed, and and it's a safe assumption in a lot of cases that remarriage is going to happen. And so that's where Jesus zeroes in on it. And then he does give the exception clause. He says, except in the case of sexual immorality. Now, sometimes you'll see this translated as adultery, but but actually just translating it as sexual immorality in, in some ways is probably the better deal because it's a little bit of a broader term. There is a specific Greek word that just narrows it to adultery, but this is a little bit of a broader term. And so we do get into the question, all right, Jesus is now saying that, all right, that there is an exception here. There's an exception in which, um, you know, if, if a man divorces his wife because she commits sexual immorality against him— And um, you could make the parallel because of other passages. If a woman divorces her husband because the husband has committed sexual immorality, um, then remarriage is okay. You're you're no longer bound in a case like that. The question is, what falls under this umbrella of sexual immorality? Now, adultery would be the most obvious case of this, but we could keep broadening it out and say, okay, well, maybe it's, it's adultery, but also could it be things that are not technically sexual intercourse, but still sexual acts with another person? Could it involve an inappropriate online relationship? Could it involve pornography? What all goes into this? And I think the way that we get some help with this is that, especially coming from a a Jewish context here where this is happening, the blanket term sexual immorality probably would have been a term that everybody in the Jewish audience understood referred to certain regulations in Leviticus and in other Old Testament passages that just talk about all the different forms of sexual immorality which would go into sort of like, all right, fornication, adultery, um, incest, even stuff like bestiality. Like it, it, it would involve all of these different things. Now, the common thread is that all of them involved intercourse in some way. So I don't think what Jesus is doing here is he's just making this broad blanket statement to say if anybody has any sin at all in the area of sex, then that means that divorce is on the table. Because some people will take this and say, well, well, Jesus also said in, in Matthew chapter 5 that if a man even looks lustfully at a woman, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. And so in that case, if there's lust, or some people will say if, if there's pornography, then that qualifies, because that qualifies as sexual immorality. And, and here's the tricky part. 
Pornography definitely qualifies as sexual immorality. It 100% is wrong and is sinful and is something that we should be waging war on. It brings great pain. It brings all kinds of negative consequences. But on the question, sort of, all right, is a wife, and, and it could be flipped, but it's typically the situation, does the wife have grounds to divorce her husband, biblical grounds to divorce her husband, if he's looked at pornography? And the answer that I'm going to give is, no, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Um, in fact, if you were to take that line of thinking to its logical end, um, you would say, well, well, it wouldn't have to be pornography. It would just be, if any man has ever looked lustfully at another woman, then the woman has grounds for divorce. And so this would make every wife in the country have grounds for divorce, because no husband has been perfect in this area, and really probably also give every husband grounds for divorce, because even even though when we think about lust, it's, it's a bigger, more pronounced problem amongst men, women are not innocent in this either. So if we were to broaden this out, we would probably say, Every married person has grounds for divorce on this. That's clearly not what Jesus is going for. So what I think that we need to do is we need to see this in the context, in the Jewish context, and in the context that Jesus is looking to narrow the situation for divorce, not broaden it out and just give us carte blanche. Um, the, the tough thing when talking about this is that some people will feel like, well, well, that's, that's minimizing the evil of pornography. I don't mean to minimize that at all. It's, it's a major problem. It brings great pain. It is absolutely a significant issue. The question is not, is it sin? We all agree that it's sin. The question is, is it grounds for a wife to divorce her husband? And I'm going to say, I, I don't think that it is. I think that it's something that should absolutely be dealt with significantly, but that it's not grounds for divorce, and that we should narrow grounds for divorce of if a husband or a wife has sexual intercourse with somebody else outside of marriage. There's all kinds of other ways that you can sin against each other. There's all kinds of wrongs, but Jesus is looking to narrow the scope of what would lead to a legitimate divorce before God's eyes. So Jesus does give the exception. Now, what, what I want to say is the Apostle Paul brings up another exception in addition to the exception of adultery or sexual immorality. And we were already in 1 Corinthians 7 once. We'll go there again um, and, and read another part of this passage because it ties right in. So this is chapter 7, starting in verse 12. Paul says, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. And by the way, some people take that as saying, Paul's just given his opinion. It's not what he's doing. Paul is simply saying, I am speaking right now, I'm not quoting Jesus, I'm not quoting the Lord, but Paul is still speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, so he says, uh, if, any, uh, if any brother, so any, if any Christian, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, as it is, they are holy. There's actually a, a whole bunch there that in a, in a different context would be cool to talk about, but I'm going to zero in. Verse 15 is, is really the helpful part for our discussion. He says, but if an unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So the pertinent thing that Paul brings up, and he brings it up in the context of, of a Christian who's married to a non-Christian, whether it's a Christian man or a Christian woman married to a non-Christian woman, non-Christian man. He says, here's the deal. Um, if, if they still want to live with you, 
You don't divorce them. You don't say, hey, we're unequally yoked. You're not about the same things that I am, uh, that I'm about. And so we're just going to cut this off. You don't do that. You live with them and you continue to believe that God is going to work through your marriage in that way. He says, but if the non-Christian wants to leave, allow them to leave. And he even says you're not bound in such circumstances, which, which to me indicates that you not only are allowing the divorce to happen and you don't need to fight tooth and nail to hold on to the marriage, but when he says you're not bound in this situation, to me that indicates you're actually free to remarry then. Certainly to marry somebody who's a believer at that point because you've already suffered the difficulties of being married to a non-Christian and having them abandon you. So when we talk about exceptions for for uh, for divorce, typically we talk about all right adultery, which Jesus talks about, and and again I I do narrow it down because I think that that is the spirit of what he's saying, and then we'd say abandonment in First Corinthians chapter seven. Some people would make it as narrow as saying, well, it's only abandonment um, if you're married to a non-Christian and they abandon you specifically because of your faith. I, I think I think it's fair to broaden it out a little bit more and to say if somebody is just absolutely abandoned by their spouse, and their spouse has just left, they're not coming back, there's no hope for reconciliation, they're just absolutely gone. That's in that case, I think it's okay to let them go, and in that case, I think there is freedom to remarry also. It's not what anyone wants. You're not trying to drive your spouse to this, and and this is part of the, the, the significance when we talk about this. I think part of our difficulty is that we're in very much an age of exceptions. Um, we really zero in on the exception in our age right now, and that's where even some of the gender stuff in our culture goes right now, where we're just like, all right, yeah, yeah, most men are like this, but let's talk about the exceptions, and so let's just flatten it all out. And yeah, some women are like this, but let's talk about the exceptions and flatten it all out. Um, that is not helpful. And so Jesus does talk about an exception. Paul adds in another exception. We, we talk about adultery and we talk about abandonment. But the goal here is not for us to try to be searching for exceptions. Like you're in, you're in a marriage and you're experiencing some difficulty and you're scouring the Bible trying to find the verse that might give you grounds to abandon your spouse in your marriage. That is not the spirit of what we're meant to go for. We are meant to find reasons to keep going. In fact, the idea with even adultery is not, hey, your spouse commits adultery, marriage is over. The idea is, if there's a chance of saving your marriage, you are fighting to save your marriage. But, and probably with the adultery, the idea is like, if, if your spouse has sort of moved on to someone else, if they're living with someone else, so if they're unrepentant or a serial adulterer, in that case, you're not still bound. The marriage vows have been broken in that sense, and probably abandonment has even gone along with the adultery. And the point is that you're, you're not looking for a reason to leave. In fact, this is important also, because this comes up sometimes, and again, I'm just going to say in my experience, this, this comes up amongst women. I, I haven't heard men bring this up, but where there can be this sense of sort of like holding on to a ground for divorce for a later time, and then being able to cash in that chip. And what I mean is this, so, so let's say a husband is unfaithful, commits adultery, um, and the wife doesn't divorce him, they sort of start to rebuild, they work together for reconciliation and healing, but she sort of lives as if like, all right, but, but I got this chip, like he, he did cheat on me, so if something comes up later on and I just decide I'm done with this guy, I can say, no, I do have grounds for divorce because back eight years ago, he cheated on me. Um, that is not within the spirit of what Jesus is talking about at all. The idea is not like, hey, I, I, I kind of got him over a barrel now. I can call in this anytime I want, or we're just going to hang together until the kids grow up, and then I'll call in the favor on this, and I'll say, no, I've, I've got grounds because this happened back in the past. 
if you reconcile, if you decide not to get divorced when this happens, you don't then hold on to something from the past and say, at any time, I just get to call in this favor. Jesus has the desire for us to rectify our marriages, even when there is an exceptional case where there are grounds for divorce. Because what God has joined together, we don't want to separate. It's meant to be an exceptional case where there's just no path back together. So Jesus is pretty strict on this. One more thing on the exceptions, and this does bother people, including it bothers me in some ways. There's a lot of people that want to say, all right, there's a third, there's a third A in the exceptions. There's adultery, there's abandonment, and there's abuse. And if there's abuse, that's grounds for divorce. Um, there's a part of me that would love to find the verse that says this. Um, we don't get to say that the Bible says something that it doesn't say. There's no passage in the Bible that says if a husband is physically abusing his wife, she has grounds for divorce. Now, you can you can look to sort of make a biblical case that it seems like that would be in, within the spirit of things. And certainly, churches should be intervening and finding ways to get women to safety, and there should be prosecution in different cases, and, and husbands should go to jail in some cases. Um, but what I just want to say is when we're looking at the Bible, we need to be very careful when we just decide we're going to say that God has said something that he hasn't said. These are complicated things of trying to find their way through. Again, some people make a case that I find somewhat compelling, like, yeah, you might be right, this might somehow fall under this, um, but we just need to be careful not to say that God has said something that he hasn't said. That's incredibly presumptuous. Um, uh, all right, so that, that covers the exceptions. Now, uh, we'll, we'll look at the last part. Now, you know, Jesus has been interacting with the Pharisees to this point. Now the disciples chirp in after Jesus says what he says in verses 8 and 9. And in verse 10, they say, it says, The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. And this to me is actually really profound. What the disciples seem to be saying here is, All right, here's the deal. If, if marriage is that stringent, if, if it is a lifelong commitment, and you really, like, only in a very exceptional case do you have way to get out of it, they say, May, maybe it's just better not to get married. And at this point, what I think a lot of us would expect for Jesus to do is to respond and say, no, guys, marriage is the best. Marriage is wonderful. Why would you ever think it's a good idea not to get married? That's not what Jesus does. Jesus seems to validate their high view of like, whoa, I, I, I better really think twice. I, sh I shouldn't get into marriage casually because this is a lifelong commitment. Look what Jesus says in verses 11 and 12. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, he says, yeah, th this is hard. Then he says this in verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been born that, who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Um, now, this is weird. We're like, what, why are we talking about eunuchs here? And Jesus just brings up the idea of saying, like, all right, so somebody might be born with the situation where they're probably never going to get married because they have some problem with their genitals that, that's not going to allow them to get married. Other people, because somebody has gone in and conquered them, some of the men have been made eunuchs, they're probably not going to get married. They, they don't have the ability to procreate. And then he says, that the way that the NIV puts it, and I think even though it's, it's interpretive, it probably is getting at what Jesus is saying. He says, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs. And, and I think the, the Greek literally would be something like they've made themselves eunuchs. Um, I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is, hey, it's, it's a great thing to go ahead and mutilate yourself so that you can't have sex. 
I think instead the NIV probably has it right, that Jesus is saying, basically, some choose to live a celibate lifestyle for the kingdom of God. Paul decided to do that. Now, a lot of people think that Paul was was probably married at one point, and then he was he was uh, his wife died, and so he was a widower, and then never remarried, and was a big fan of not remarrying because he thought it gave him lots of freedom. But Jesus points towards the idea of saying, "Yeah, some people are going to say that's too hard, that's too too stringent, and so I'm not going to do it." And the good thing is that Jesus says there's a path to this that wouldn't just be, hey, I'm a really selfish guy, so I don't want to be committed, or I'm a really selfish gal, and I don't want to be committed, but instead would be to say, I want to be more free, and so I want to serve God with that freedom, so I'm not going to get married. This is what we talked about in the previous episode, that Paul's a big fan of this. Even though Paul sort of assumes that the norm is still going to be marriage, he's a big fan of the idea of being like, hey, if, if you're not married, you're not worried about what your husband's thinking or what your wife is thinking, you can just do what you think that God has called you to do, and that's a wonderful thing. Jesus says, yeah, you, you think that this is a big deal and you think that you should think twice about getting into marriage? You're right. Not everybody can accept this. Not everybody should get married. In a way, he's saying like, hey, if you can't accept God's terms for marriage, just don't get married. Don't get married and then try to change it or try to make it your own. Um, it, it would be almost like if you were joining a sports team and you're like, well, I'm, I'm going to join this team. And the coach is saying, here's when practices are, and here's what we're going to do in practices. And here's what you need to buy. And here's what you need to wear. And, and here's all the rules. And you just get into it and you say, well, I, I want to be on the team, but I'm not going to do all those things. The coach would probably say, nobody's holding the gun to your hand. Don't uh, go gun to your head. Don't join the team if you don't want to live under the way that I'm running the team. Nobody's going to make you get married. You don't need to get married if you look at this and say, I, I just, I don't think that I want to bind myself to somebody that I don't have ways to get out of that. Um, the biblical wisdom would be to say, well, well, then for heaven's sake, don't get married. Know what you're getting into. What you're getting into is meant to be a lifelong commitment where you are going to hurt each other. You are going to experience difficulty. And you may not ever be at the point that you're threatening divorce, but, but I guarantee there's nobody in the country, there's no married couple in the country where the thought hasn't crossed each of their minds at one point being like, man, I think my wife, my, I think my life would be easier if I wasn't married to this person. That's just, that's part of what goes on. And it might sound sad and cynical to say that, but that that's just the reality. We're dealing with our own selfishness. We're dealing with other people's selfishness. That There's an understandable reason why divorce is so rampant, but the sheer pain that comes along with divorce. And here's the striking thing that, that Jesus could have talked about so many things. Um, he could have, again in here, he could have talked about like, man, you are absolutely defrauding the woman in this situation if you're a man and, and divorce your wife. And he could even say as a woman, you're absolutely humiliating and defrauding your husband if, if you just abandon him and divorce him. He could have talked about the children, said, look, look at the impact that this is going to have in the children, which is undeniable statistically, the impact that divorce has on children. He could have gone through all of that, but that's not where he focuses. Where he focuses is marriage is God's idea. God defines what it, what it is. Don't you dare separate what God has brought together. And that goes even for those of us who are married. There's the exceptional cases, but I, but I just even want to say, don't focus your mind. It's, it's easy to look at this passage and be like, this passage is all about the exception. It's not. The exception is one part of one verse in this whole passage. The bigger picture is that Jesus is saying, this is something that God made. And when we talked about it in Ephesians 5, God made this to be a representation of how he relates to us, how Christ relates to his church. So what God has joined together, let no one separate. Um, one last thing to say be before ending this episode, and, and that's this. Um, first of all, there's some of you that you're like, I've already been divorced. Oh, 
what, what do I do? Um, and, and what I'd say is, um, you may, you, you may look back on your divorce and you may be like, I initiated my divorce and I really screwed up. Um, or you might look back and be like, well, I didn't initiate my divorce. Um, it, it was, you know, it was my ex-wife or my ex-husband and, and that's possible. Or you may even look back and say, well, I did have grounds for divorce and I initiated the divorce and it, and it was, you know, biblical in all that way. What I'd say is, um, it still would be wise if you haven't already taken time in your life to do this, to look back at your marriage and just say, what went wrong? And if your only takeaway is what went wrong was my spouse, you're probably not really experiencing what God wants you to experience in the aftermath of this. Um, somewhere involved in every divorce is sin. Sometimes it's primarily one person and, and the other person doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. But for all of us, we should be looking back and being like, Wait, where was my sin in this situation? And where do I need healing? And where do I need to grieve over the fact that God joined something together and it ended up separated? Um, and, and the other thing just to, to bring up is this. Um, all of what Jesus is talking about here is not meant to point towards the idea that marriage is easy and that if you're at a point where you're experiencing a lot of pain in your marriage, hey, just get over it. The point is to say, if, if you're experiencing a lot of difficulty in your marriage, there's things that you should do. There's recourse that you should take, you know, counseling together or just counseling alone or just looking to grow and looking to communicate and looking to read books and, and looking to do something about it. Sometimes people would say like, well, we're just miserable together. So should we be miserable together or happy apart? First of all, that's a fallacy. Your life is not going to get easier just because you get a divorce and you're not destined to automatically have to be unhappy together the rest of your life. Look at this and say, this is where God has us. We're in this together. We're stuck with each other. So let's look to lean in towards Jesus and experience as much joy and as much fruit and as much goodness as we possibly can as we walk through the season of God having joined us together. Um, this was obviously a lot of info, and I don't want this just to be like the raw info, but, but I hope that you can see what this passage is about and what it tells us, not only about divorce, but also about marriage and about God's heart for marriage. If you have questions or feedback, feel free to leave the comments just on the YouTube video. You can find all the Christian Contrast podcast episodes on YouTube and also on lbf.church. Um, we do these episodes every two weeks, so in two weeks we'll be back with the fourth part in this series, the fourth passage and talking about marriage and the biblical view of marriage. Um, if you haven't already watched the first two episodes in this series, I encourage you to do so. I think that it'll build you up and help you understand what the Bible has to teach about this. But thanks so much for taking the time to watch and to listen, and I'll see you next time on The Christian Contrast.